Welcome to Trial Lawyer View, a podcast for and about trial lawyers. We will tell the stories about trial lawyers go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. This is about their stories and their practices. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason Lazarus, your host for Trial Lawyer View. Thank you for tuning in today for another episode. Trial Lawyer View is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. In full disclosure, I'm not a professional podcaster. Instead, my day job is Chief Executive Officer of Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy allows trial lawyers to focus on what they do best by handling the difficult issues that arise at settlement, like troublesome lien resolution issues, Medicare secondary payer compliance, government benefit preservation techniques, and complex settlement planning. Welcome back to Trial Lawyer Review and my conversation with Keith Mitnick. Keith is going to continue to share his incredible insights and thoughts in this next episode. Here, so you, your podcast is dedicated to sharing your art of outsmarting, which you already mentioned, uh, which gives trial prep exercises that can block the defense and turn the case in favor of the plaintiff. If you had to highlight only the top things to help other trial lawyers from those insights you give, what would they be? I would say dealing with comp neg- comparative negligence, we have so many of those claims, and they used, to, they used to give me much more anxiety than they do now. And it's all perspective. You gotta remember what's enough for them to, remember it's their burden of proof if they wanna pass the blame to you, your client or a third party. It's their burden, not yours. And what is it that they have to prove? It's not enough to simply prove that my client could have done something different. It's not enough to prove someone else would have done something different. That's for all the jurors who go, I, don't, I wouldn't have done that. It's only enough if they prove that my client did something wrong, a civil, official, civil wrong. They acted unreasonable under the circumstances. And the circumstances change everything. Yeah, the sidewalk was sticking up, open and obvious. Yes, it was broad daylight. Yes, my client could have seen it if looked at the right moment. Yes, someone else would have seen it and avoided it. None of that helps them even a little. They got to prove my client did something wrong under the law, under the circumstances. And they want to suggest if you're walking on a sidewalk, you got to have your head down watching where your feet land every step. Well, if people did that downtown in Orlando, Florida at lunchtime, they'd be conking heads all up and down the sidewalk. That's not reasonable. If you're walking through a junkyard in flip-flops with broken glass and rusty mufflers and possums snapping around, you better be looking at every step or it's on you. It's like a minefield, not a sidewalk. We call it a sidewalk for a reason. It's a safe place to walk. That's why it's a sidewalk. So the fact my client was looking at the turtle in the road she got pulled over to do a turtle rescue and didn't see it doesn't mean she did something wrong because there was nothing to tell her she needs to be walking like this because of where she was walking. But you know who it should have been open and obvious to? The defendants. They knew about it. They were complained about it by others. They did nothing about it. Please bring back a verdict that says my client did nothing wrong. These folks did, and they are completely responsible, and recognize that the magnitude was taken from my client in the way of health. 
and we got a, like a $1.35 million verdict on this open and obvious that when I first looked at it, I went, oh, hell, what are we going to do with that? And then I said, settle down, practice what you preach. And from that came this, hey, why are we still right in spite of the fact it is open and obvious? we got to fix fact. Why are we still right? Why is the right conclusion to say it's their fault, not it's our fault? And the answer came in that space between circumstances. Where was she walking? And whose burden of proof? And what's enough and what's not? So I can do these all day, but those are some good highlights. Uh, incredible download and tips. I gotta give one more, one more, because I don't want to only do I, one thing. I don't want to only do car crashes. Let me give you one more that is way up there on my list for med mal cases. Med mal cases are very difficult. And one of the reasons they're difficult is because the jurors don't know what the safety rules are. Not like you speed. You don't need an expert to say you don't exceed the speed limit. You don't need to say you don't follow too close. You don't need to I can go down the list all day. They know what's right and wrong. With doctors' cases, it's not so easy. You've got to teach them what the safety rules are, what's right and wrong. And the other side's hired someone to say, no, 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 what he did is fine. And we're saying what he did is terrible. They say, give him a gold star. And now the jury goes, I don't know who's right or wrong. And if these fancy experts can't agree, I don't want to ruin the doctor's career and brand them a malpractice over all times when these experts can't even agree. So you get into this squishy area over what the standard of care was, which is are the way you say negligence in a med mal case is, the, did they violate or fall below the standard of care? Those are, that is a difficult battle. Um, I have developed something that takes you in many cases to a path of least resistance. That's an easier path to prove to a jury. And it involves saying, I'll give you a, this is a, a classic example. Uh, brain damage baby case, bad, bad injury. Um, the case was about the baby in utero moved into the breech position then moved back on its own. We said that meant the baby, and it was close to delivery, so the baby was floating, wasn't fixed in, that's dangerous, because if they're in the wrong position, in breech position, and going to labor at home, the baby can get oxygen deprived. And we had a severely oxygen deprived child. We say that's exactly what happened. Um, so, and the defense was, no, once the baby moved back on its own, there's nothing left to worry about. We say you should have kept the mother in the hospital when they brought him in to physically reposition the child and the child had moved back all on its own late in the pregnancy. That meant it was free, free movement. They say no. We say you keep in the hospitals so she doesn't go into, she was close to delivering anyhow. Keep her there so she doesn't go into the back to breach and go into the delivery at home. Or at least do daily sonograms to make sure the baby's not changed again. Fences, no way. Tough, tough, tough case. Here's what I developed in that case, and I've been using it ever since the med mal cases, where it fits, and it fits in a whole lot of them. You have your experts say, standard of care was A, B, C, and just add one extra one. And I'm not talking about coaching your expert. You just ask them, is this a, a valid concern standard of care? And I, I, I can't imagine they're going to say no. It just makes sense. But So you run it by the expert and make sure that they're comfortable with it, and honestly. And they say, yeah, and that extra opinion is, and at the very least, if for some reason you weren't going to do those two things, at least tell the mother. Tell the parents one option would be to keep her, another would be to do the sonograms. And you get their defense expert to acknowledge on the record it wouldn't have been malpractice to keep them. they just say it wasn't necessary. So now, 
they bring in their fancy expert with the best credentials I've ever seen in my life. In this cross comes, I call it, keeping the patient in the loop, not in the dark. In the loop, not in the dark. Because everyone can agree on that. So instead of having this big fight just over hospital or not, sonogram or not, this was the almost indefensible position. I got their expert in and said, now, I understand you say it's fine to send home, but you agree there would have been nothing wrong with keeping the mother or doing the sonogram. You're not saying that'd be malpractice. That'd have been an exceptional choice. You just say it wasn't required, right? Wasn't required, but, but, but could have been and would have been okay to do it, yes? Well, so wouldn't you agree with me that the defendant doctor should at least have told the mother that those were options since they're viable, proper options? Now the guy's losing all his confidence. And I kept pushing him and pushing him. And he kept avoiding it and avoiding it because he knew the answer was going to be bad one way or the other. He's either going to admit she should have and, and he, the, the doctor should have and that he didn't or sound ridiculous. And finally I said, well, let me put it there. He said, I don't understand your question. I said, well, you may be the only one in the courtroom doesn't with all that training, but let's, let me ask it a different way. Are you suggesting when all those students you train in med school and those doctors that are residents you send out into the world, you say, listen, it's okay to keep the patient in the dark. You don't need to keep them in the loop. Is that what you're teaching? Of course not. Okay, good. So would you agree here that this doctor failed to keep this patient in the loop, instead kept him in the dark? And that's not acceptable. And finally, he had to say, no, I think it's fine. I said, you think it's fine. That's what you tell these jurors. And you could see the jurors who up to that moment loved him going, hmm. So remember in MedMal, don't keep the patient in the dark, keep them in the loop. And it is not in lack of informed consent. Lack of informed consent is when they do a procedure and they didn't tell them the risk. This is you didn't offer options. Now, for goodness sake, check the law in your, your jurisdiction because maybe somewhere they would consider an informed consent and if so, plead it. But I don't think it is personally in, in, in Florida, but I'd rather be safe than sorry. But that, that is a way to present where instead of you got to be right or wrong on this, you just, you, it's okay to be right on this one and they're going to have a hard time convincing the jury it's okay to keep patient in the dark. Well, incredible insights. I, so because you have been in the courtroom so much, you, you, you've got all this experience, you've achieved some incredible verdicts uh, in, in 22. From what I saw, you already have a 12.3, a 3.3 and $2.6 million verdicts. And I, I wanted to ask you about some of the more noteworthy verdicts um, in doing my research um, for the episode that I, I came across and why they might be important. Any trial lessons you learned and maybe I focused on the wrong thing because they're bigger, bigger verdicts, but I'm interested to hear. Um, so yeah, there, there's a, your $90.2 million uh, tobacco verdict Townsend, uh, you had a $25 million uh, verdict in a motorcycle accident brain injury case, and then an auto 18.8 auto accident paralysis um, case. Anything that you you can share with listeners about those verdicts and anything left. Well, the tobacco verdict is one of those that'll not only was it large, it's just you've taken on, in my personal opinion, you know, the if you put up a picture of what did I go to law school to take on 
what bully that that would be it. And so to try and make a difference with them, at least maybe put a little chink in their armor, um, is one of those things will stay with me forever. And they're hard cases. They have fantastic lawyers. They've got the most sophisticated litigation machine in the history of litigation in the United States. They've been doing it forever. They're, they focus group everything. They're, they're very, very smart at it. Um, and that case, um, I won't go into the details because it's such a unique area and so few people to do those cases, but it was as good a proving ground and as good a challenge as I've ever seen in a case where they're just one after another, after another, after another facts that there was this battle over right and wrong conclusions. So for me, it was, you know, problem solving heaven to sit down and think, they say this first reaction is that sounds very scary. Why are we still right in spite of it? And to do that over and over and over um, against the mental chess of some very good chess masters was a ultimate challenge. And to have come out ahead on that um, meant a lot. Um, I'll give you one example, not because you're ever going to use it, but because it's another example of how you solve problem solve, how you get to the bottom of it. A big, big, big defense. I've never seen a more powerful word in litigation. A single word carried so much power in a lawsuit as their word choice. They could stand up and defend their case and say one thing, choice, and sit down. And they'd be halfway home. It, it is such a hard thing to overcome. And I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And I finally came up with something that honestly, I, I, it's a pretty good response. And that is, because, you know, they say, it was your choice, it's your choice. And we say, you're misleading them, you're misleading them, and you're doing this. And they say, it was still your choice. And at some point, you heard enough, and you still, and that, that's this big battleground. But, and I use this in other type cases, so it does have some utility. Remember this, choices are not made in a vacuum. Choices are a product of circumstances. If it's cold out, People are probably not wearing a t-shirt. They're wearing a sweater. That's their choice. They're probably not drinking as icy on a freezing day. They're probably drinking hot coffee or hot cocoa. If a, it's a football play, if it is fourth and in inches and they're ahead by two touchdowns with a minute left, they're probably punting the ball. If they're behind by two touchdowns, they're probably going for it on fourth down. Choices are not made in a vacuum. They're a product of circumstances. So yes, my client's choice was to keep smoking. They were addicted, it wasn't a free choice. But let's talk about everything they did to impact that choice. And suddenly, choice isn't so scary. So that that case, those cases meant so much to me because of, I felt like there was this big societal benefit to them. And you were taking on the best of the best. And so that was very fulfilling to me. And then, you know, like the, one of the, the, the motorcycle case. I, I developed a system to deal with motorcycle cases because it seems so, I go back to unfairness. I hate unfairness. And these people won't offer money, you know why? Because they want to think everyone in a motorcycle got what they deserve. They assume the risk. 
And I thought, you know what? I ain't getting on one of them. I think it's crazy. But there, it isn't fair to walk in a courtroom and say, because of my personal uh, decisions that I'm not put choices to not ride a motorcycle, doesn't mean that they shouldn't be able to get justice. It's illegal. There's nothing wrong. Millions of people do it. They ought to get justice. They shouldn't come in here with some prejudice hanging around their neck. So I developed stuff in that case. We had a, it was a, a, a guy didn't have a helmet on in one of those verdicts. I'm not sure which one. I've had a bunch of motorcycle cases, but didn't even have the helmet on. It was a brain injury. And so question for the jury. How many of you feel if someone doesn't get in the protective cage of a car, wrapped in the metal and protected, they're out on the road exposed on a motorcycle with all those other vehicles on the road, and they get hurt in a crash, that they're going to be at least partially First of all, how many of you think they shouldn't recover anything? Yeah, you asked for it. And I'd get a few people for cause on that. And the rest of them, I said, how many of you feel that if they get on a motorcycle and they get hurt, that they're going to be at least partially responsible for their own injuries, even if they did nothing wrong to cause the crash. Just as a matter of principle that you got on the motorcycle. Well, I got, you know, most of the room for cause. We had to keep running through panels of jurors. But you know what? We got it. Then you did. How many of you think if someone had a head injury on a motorcycle, a brain injury, and they weren't wearing a helmet? How many of you think they're going to at least be partially at fault for their own injuries, no matter what the doctors say? Even if the doctors were to say it wouldn't make a lick of difference. Helmet. Again, matter of principle. That was damn near everybody for causing that. But finally, after a hard, hard, long, long jury selection, we got a big, just verdict. And it was just spotting the problem. So that case was important to me because it, it, it taught me, don't be scared of motorcycle cases. You just got to confront what scares you and I talk it out with the jury. And when you get people that aren't going to be biased against them for being on a motorcycle in the first place. So those are some thoughts from some of those cases. And you've authored three books, which is pretty impressive. I'm, I'm working on my second and uh, that that's been a, a torturous. It's actually just, it's two. The other, I, a lot of folks think there's a third. The, the winning before beginning looks like a book on the trial guide site. It's actually a DVD. Ah, okay. So well, there, like the two it, books are Don't Eat the Bruises and Deeper Cuts. They're the full-length books. Impressive as hell, two books. Either way, what what are the the single most important takeaways from each of those books? I I, I do know that's a big ask, but you know, well, I'm trying, to, trying to get you to share some of your secrets here. Sure. I, 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 let's start with Deeper Cuts. It was the first one. Um, I'm sorry, Don't Eat the Bruises. It was the first one. How to Foil Their Plans to... Uh, Spoil your case. That case is basically a, a, a full-blown version of the audio tape winning before beginning. It is, there's more to it, but if I had to define what is that really about, it is about jury selection and opening statement, winning opening statements, and mastering the art of getting cause challenges, valid cause challenges, in jury selection so you have a fair fight. You have a fair even jury, not one that's loaded with people who are pulling for the defense and ha or hate your case or, or parts of your case. So it lays out my system and you know, it, it started my system. Uh, 
there was a guy named Jay Burke who was a he's an older guy and that was a hell of a good jury consultant and he talked about cause is king and how you got to get cause challenges and and I very young worked with him and I just like my mentors lawyers he was a mentor in this jury selection process and he got me started down that and I took concepts of his and I fine-tuned them to the point um, I, I feel like they're mine even though I have to got to acknowledge Jay because he certainly was the father of invention in that department um, I just took it to what I think is a, a, a another level. But in any event, so the, the process that I share on how to quickly get and hold on to valid cause challenges um, during jury selection so that you can have a fair fight is a big part of what I call winning before beginning. And the second part is I believe very, very deeply minds are made up in most cases after opening statement. So you're going to lose the case or win the case by the time that first witness gets there, or at least by the time they leave. I, I feel that's, that's just a fact. The defense can play catch-up. I don't think we can, except in rare situations. So you better use everything in your power to get a fair trial through jury selection. And then you better recognize an opening statement that it's not just you saying, let me tell you why we're right. Because guess who gets a turn after you? And they're speaking last in opening, the defense. You don't get a rebuttal in defense. So you can say everything good you want. And the jury go, boy, he's got a good case. But when the defense sits down, you know what they're going to do if you don't deal with what they're saying? They're going to go, man, you had me going. I thought you had a good case. When were you going to tell me about that? And if you had an answer for it, you would have told me. So you're done. I always say it's not good enough to pat yourself in the back after you do your opening and you go to the, on a bathroom break, it's only good enough to pat yourself on the back when you're going for lunch break after their opening because you anticipated the things they were going to say that weren't fair and found a way to put it in proper perspective, in context, so the jury goes, when he sits down, yeah, that hasn't changed. These guys are right. So at the end of the day, while there's a lot more to it, the heart and soul of don't eat the bruises is winning at the beginning, opening void dire and opening statement. Then deeper cuts was there's a lot of new update stuff, you know, because it's like I said at the beginning, it's such a constantly evolving. That's what makes it exciting. Well, uh, since I wrote don't eat the bruises, I've taken those systems and added a lot. And I've had people say, well, why, why would I get the earlier book? Why not get the new stuff, not the old, out-of-date stuff? I say, no, please, I'm not trying to sell books, but please don't think of it that way. Don't Eat the Bruises, I think of it as the mainframe. Deeper Cuts is like you get a download something onto the app to update your app. And these are updates that make the mainframe run even better. But you got to have the mainframe for them to truly maximize the new stuff. Um, and But really, aside from the new strategies and updated strategies, um, I always say deeper cuts, one of the things I think it's been so popular is it's not individual, number one, it isn't just a bunch of war stories that make you sound impressive, but they don't help anybody unless they have the exact case, which they don't. And I never want to waste people's time doing that. I want to give them something that's reproducible. Any lawyer can drop it down in any case and gather benefit from it. 
That's why I call it systems. And they're not one-off things. They all fit in a bigger system. I call them systems that simply work. They're not that hard to do, but they're not simple. They're powerful. That's why I say systems that simply work. So that don't eat the bruises with the systems. I really think a deeper cuts is more than just an update to the mainframe. I consider it, I got all those systems, but what if I could teach you how I developed those systems? What was the process that I used that allowed me to create all these systems that work so well? Then I will have really given you something of value. Because if you understand my thinking process and how I came up with those systems, you can take those systems and expand them and expand them and expand them beyond where I ever did. Or come up with new systems I never even thought of. And I, I hear from people all the time say, let me tell you what I did. It's different. I loved your idea. But I, and I hear what they say. I said, that's fantastic. I'm going to do that. Um, so it is a never-ending process where I deeply believe in all a rising tide lifts all boats. If I share these things, how I came up with them, the process beneath the systems, then sky's the limit of what people can do with them. And if you understand where they came from, in application, they work smoother and better, and it's easier to make adjustments so they fit your personality, your style. Because you can't copy Mitnick's style anymore, and I can you know, copy Brian Panish's style. You know, we got our own styles. Um, so you make it your own. And what I want to hear is a year later, you know, you always hear some, someone, some hard rock band says, yeah, one of my influences was... Um, Simon and Garfunkel, how the hell did they get that? Doesn't sound anything like Simon and Garfunkel. But it was an influence. I've tried to make deeper cuts. I want to be that influence that some artist is doing something doesn't look remotely like what I was talking about. But I was an inspirational piece of what it became. And it became something even better and cooler. So that's what I see globally is the real significance Updates that are very valuable, but the real important part of deeper cuts was teaching the systems beneath it. And then I added some things that I hadn't done. I hadn't done MedMal. I did a whole section in it on medical malpractice. My best stuff's in there. And like I say, I want to reach the widest audience, and that's the car crash audience. But I hate to shortchange people on MedMal when I have some ideas I know make a difference, like that um, uh, keep them in the loop, not in the dark, but I got a bunch more of them. So I added that section, and I did one other thing that I is that I think is really important in that in in uh, deeper cuts, which I had something that I came up with. Some I like catchy names because catchy stuff sticky and it helps people remember. I call it the maximum justice matrix, and I went through a systematically how you take a case and used mostly examples that car crash herniated disc case to get full value, not some discount scared of asking for what it's really worth uh, outcome. And it was putting an end to living pain, which includes things like pilot light pain, and it isn't cane pain. It's not the kind of pain that you, you that interferes so much with the doing as with the experience of doing, and all those things, the, the crick in the neck, all of that stuff fits right into putting an end to belittling pain you can't see. The second part of the maximum justice matrix was the Dignity of damages, elevating damages up where they belong. They're not something to be apologized for. Clients don't come to us looking for 
a philosophical debate over right and wrong. They come for a remedy, and the remedy, we're in the business of getting remedies. And we're in the business of getting the right remedy, which is a full justice. So you have to elevate in your own heart the dignity of asking for damages, and you have to elevate it with the jury so they understand. You know, in America, we don't believe in eye for an eye justice. It's barbaric. But we also don't believe in turning in a blind eye to justice because that's no justice at all. So what do we do? We gather people from the community to sit as a group of appraisers and assess what is the fair value for what was taken in the way of health, what was lost. It's not about how much you're going to get. It's about how much was taken, what's the fair value for what was lost by this injury that was thrust into their life unnaturally by no fault of their own. And, and while we no longer do eye for an eye justice, people think that was punishment, punitive, and it wasn't. If you read up on it, the old eye for an eye justice was not. The idea was a public recognition of the full value of what was lost. And what better way to do it? So you want everyone to understand how valuable it is to lose an eyesight? We'll take your eye. Now, while we don't do that anymore, the underlying concept remains the same. We are here to fully and completely recognize what was taken in the way of health. We just do it in this way by setting a monetary value of what was taken. Keeping in mind, this is as good as it's going to get, and this is a verdict for all time. We don't come back 10, 20, 30, 40 years and redo this. We get it right now, we don't get it right at all. That's, there's more to it. That's elevating the dignity of damages. So you put an end to belittling pain, you, you remind jurors of the dignity of damages, and then the last is the audacity to ask for full value. Not audacity as in look at me show off, as in bold and courageous to ask what the case is really worth. And that really is a, a system where I talk to the folks in the, through the book about understanding the value of cases and having your full heart and soul accept the full value of cases because you can't, you can't expect the jury to accept it if you're timid about it and don't believe it. If you don't believe it, don't ask for it. And then ultimately damage models that will validate a fair and reasonable amount that is a significant amount because it's a, a lot was taken. So those are the, that's, that's how big picture I see the difference between the two books. I, I, I'm proud of both of them in a, in a good, in a fulfilling way because I've gotten so much feedback from people who say, you know, I got Nick Rowley, who's a dear friend of mine and, and one of the best lawyers in America. And Nick was, sent me a uh, video, snap he did, of he was preparing for a trial, which he ended up getting a great result on. But he's sitting there with me, he says, trial prep, and he zooms down, he got a picture of you know, my book on his lap. Um, so, and listen, I take stuff from others. I, you know, I take stuff from, from um, Rick Friedman, I take uh, from Riley. Riley did, he and I did a, a mutual together, face-to-face -face kind of webinar. And he said something in jury selection when he asked jurors and, about their you know, potential biases. He said, is that your truth? I just know, is that your truth? And I said, what a beautiful way to say it, your truth. I now, when I'm doing jury selection, use the word, is that your truth, frequently. I do it in every case now, it doesn't matter how often. So we all collaborate and we all share. It's fulfilling to me to have the feedback from everybody from a brand new out of law school to a skilled, experienced lawyer to someone like a, a Nick Riley say, I got something of value out of this. And you go, you know what, then I did something good.
because I wanted to give something of value to those people. I didn't want to show off. I didn't want to make some money selling the books. You don't make much any money selling books. I, I just wanted to say, I've got this blessing of trying all these cases, and I happen to have a good problem-solving mind, and I've solved a lot of problems, and, and I want to share them, and I want to share them in a way that is easy to reproduce, and it's, and it's not I have to memorize one thing. It's an overall system. And then lastly, I wanted to say, now let me tell you, I came up with all of them because it's really not some genius. It's a process. It's just a process. You just figure the process out and spend some time doing it. And don't think it's extra work because goodness sakes, it's the fun part. Just going to interrogatories and this and this, that's all important. But don't rob yourself of the fun. The fun of what we do is when we get to use our heads. And we, you didn't get through law school, didn't get in law school, didn't get in the law firm being a big dummy. Everybody's got a good mind. And so allow yourself the pleasure of, of the fun side. Of I'm, You know what? Do you like to have their hand around your throat? No. But how about if you pull them off your throat? Now you got your hand on their throat. That's fun. And so how do you get there? Well, they're not going to teach you how to do it. You spend time thinking about why are they wrong and why am I right in spite of the fact on the surface this thing looks wrong. This is the fact. Why is my conclusion right? Why is theirs wrong? And the last part of that that I really have taken pleasure out of that really when I wrote during COVID the second book and a part of it, a big part of it came from a bunch of, we weren't trying cases and I was, you know, stir crazy. So I just started having phone call after phone call after phone call with our lawyers in our offices about problem solving on cases. So when trials came back on board, they were ready to go or they put in a better position to settle them. And one thing I realized, if you took all these problems that people perceive as problems, I call them wannabe problems, and you show people why they're really not, not just how you're going to convince a jury they're not, but how you, lawyer, I'm going to convince you it's really not a problem. Think what that does. That means rather than getting up in the morning going, man, I wish I had a better case, Lo, why am I all my cases snake bit? I got all these problems. If I can take a big eraser and say, that's not a problem, that's not. And the reason you got them is they come in these cases. It's the nature of the case. Not a problem, not a problem. Not, all of a sudden you get up in the morning and say, thank you for my caseload. You're more fulfilled, you're happier, you fight harder. You're less likely to take a low ball offer. You're more likely to march into trial. If you're confident, your case isn't riddled with problems. And honestly, there are going to be some problems. There always are. But it's going to be a few, not a, a, a bushel full. So I'm all about diminishing the number of real problems you have to do with because it makes your pleasure of doing this wonderful thing we do greater. And it builds your confidence. So a couple of questions as we wrap up, um, kind of that's a nice segue into the the next question, which is um, always uh, a little self-serving, but I do always ask it in, in conclusion if, and maybe this is just not because of, of your the uniqueness of your practice, but are there issues that you see when cases are settling um, with the firm that make it more difficult today? You know, I. I usually ask, you know, is there in particular lien resolution or Medicare compliance or government benefits? I, and, and, you know, that that's what I hear a lot of, of, you know, 
issues that trial lawyers reach out to me about is like, how do we, how do we, you know, get around this particular issue? Actually, I just worked on a case for a lawyer in your firm and it was a, a Medicaid um, lien where they just could not get the um, folks at Conduit who handle Florida's Medicaid liens to listen to something that was a valid argument as to why there, there really shouldn't be a lien. And you know, I was able to get to the lawyer who, who could get it done and, and, you know, was able to get that lien waived, which is, you know, part of what we do daily. But I'm just curious if, if you see those things at all. Yeah, I, I'm usually in, we're going to trial. So I don't see them like the, I used to where I was in the, in the trenches with all of it. But there is no question, and it comes up in trial, and you want to try and settle a case, and you have something like a big lien hanging out there that's in, getting in the way. And, and look, at the end of the day, it's net recovery to your clients, what matters to them. And how can you give them good advice, whether it's before court or in the heat of the moment in a trial, about what you're going to net when they ask, well, what, what's that mean to me, if you've got these big question marks hanging out there? So folks like you um, um, that that really are skilled and specialists at doing something most lawyers aren't, and you're better at it. People are crazy not to use your services on those kind of things just because you just gave an example. Y'all have access to things we don't because you, you, know, you do one type or a handful of things and that's all you do. You get a whole lot better at it than some lawyer that's dealing with a thousand things. So anytime you can remove obstacles to settlement's a good thing because I love trials, but at the end of the day, it ain't about me loving trials. It's about getting a, a, a recovery that is fair and reasonable for your client. And it's not entertainment. I can love it all I want, but by God, if there's an opportunity to do right by my client without rolling the dice on that verdict, you want to do it. Now, are your odds of getting fair and reasonable go way up when they know you will take them to trial and, and, and try a case as good as anybody in the world would and and get results most of the time, then they start getting more reasonable with you. So there's a great value to the courtroom, but at the end of the day, you never can lose sight of it. It's a net recovery for the client and any obstacles that stand in the way of a fair net recovery. If they're removed, your chances of having an outcome that really made a difference for your client go way up. So I, folks like you that can do that kind of hard work and know how to do it better than damn near anybody. People are crazy not to consider the services. I know y'all have helped our firm a bunch over the years. Very well said, thank you. Uh, so last question, uh, you know, since the podcast is called Trial or Review um, and it's an open-ended question, answer it however you want. What's your view as a trial lawyer? What's my view as a trial lawyer? Although I think you've said a lot of it already, but <laughs> I've said a lot of it. But I, I can I can give you one last piece of that. My view of it is is that we do something important. We you want to call us ambulance chasers and tell all the lawyer jokes and all that stuff, but you know what? When it happens to to you, the lawyer is not a joke. The lawyer that takes your case, stands up to you, fights as if it was their own family member. Clients usually go away, you're like family to them. And you get an opportunity as a lawyer 
to truly make differences in lives and to truly stand up against injustice by bullies that don't usually care about what's right. They just want to win. And so we have a, the better we get at it, the better results we get, and the bigger difference we make. So my view as a trial lawyer is, it is an honest-to-gosh gift, it's a blessing, it's a hard path, but boy, think about it. Think about all the, just give yourself a moment to just quickly run through 10, 20, 30 cases. Don't dwell. And think about how you change those lives. And those people came to you and said, I'm picking you to stand up for me in a setting where I can't stand up for myself. Think of all the times you stood up for people and backed the bully down. And think about how many of those people for the rest of their life are going to think about you, include you in their prayers. So my view of what we do, it is a gift, and we should use it to its fullest. Phenomenal way to end it. I that that really touches my heart because it's what I so firmly believe in, especially after after my experiences, and also you know what. I talk about with everybody that joins this company is the privilege and opportunity that we get to help people when they're resolving their cases because of what they've been through. They deserve every single dollar of compensation uh, that, that they're entitled to. So uh, really appreciate you being with me today. Let me, if you don't mind, I want to just add one more outreach thing. Uh, if I have a um, listserv and I send out I try to do it once a week. During COVID, I did once a week. Now I'm back in trial, and sometimes I may go two, three weeks and only send one. But I, call, I, I do these things that are audio podcasts called, and I call them brush strokes. And I do it up in New York City in a studio. They actually did some of the voiceovers for Shrek there. It's kind of cool. I couldn't get up there. I still do that. But we now, if you look in the back back here, you can see I got my audio equipment back there now. So we now, I'm still doing this. And you can go listen to them. They're like 15 minutes. People like them because they can listen to them in the car and they're quick, to the point, little nuggets on things called brush strokes. You can get to them. There's Spotify and various ways you can get them. The way I, easiest way I know to go, you can go to my website, which is keithmitnick.com, keithmitnick.com, M-I-T-N-I-K, not C-K. And they're on there. Um, and we just did a whole bunch of new episodes of them. But during COVID, I could not, uh, get up there to do them, and we didn't have this. I didn't have this technology here to do it at my house. So um, I came up with at home, but not alone, brush strokes, which was the same thing I was doing on the audios that I was now just doing in a one to two, maximum three page. I really try hard not to go to the third page um, that you can sit and read quickly and really be something that I say, wow, I can use this in this case. I, I get emails back all the time. I got a case coming up right now. This helps with thank you. So I love doing it. And, it's a, and I, now that I'm doing the audios, I'm going to continue doing the written ones. They're just, it, it feels right to me. And so if you want them, I think I'm up to the 56th one and I'm no, I'll be doing them for now till I can't do them anymore. I'm too old. Um, if you want them, all you got to do, they're free, just like the audio things are. Um, email me at kmitnick.com at forthepeople.com, F-O-R, 
thepeople.com. Kmitnick at forthepeople.com. And please include my assistant, Mary Arnold. It just makes it easier for me to get it to her. And that's just marnold at forthepeople.com. And simply say, I'd like to get on your list, sir. And we will not only add you to it, I'll have her send you all of the past ones so you've caught up. And, and, and I tell you that, I don't get anything out of it other than the fulfillment of I know those little things are, I send them internally to my own firm. Everyone's used them. I use them. I pull them out sometimes and look at them. And I really think it is just another avenue to share as much as I can. Thanks for sharing that because I was going to ask you how to how to make sure we put people in contact with you if they were interested in anything they heard today. So we will put that in the show notes and link to everything uh, once the episode goes live. And again, thanks to Keith for joining me today. And we'll see everybody on the next episode. Hey, good seeing you. And thanks for having me, bud. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to Trial Lawyer Review. You can find more at triallawyerreview.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.